Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Good afternoon, and thanks for listening. I hope you all had a great holiday weekend. I have a really awesome interview for you today with Dr. Sandy Karen from the University of Maine. She's a professor of family relations and human sexuality in the College of Education and Human Development. Dr. Sandy Karen received her undergraduate and master's degree from the University of Maine and her PhD from Syracuse University. And she left her health education position at Cornell University in 1988 to return to her home state of Maine. In addition to her faculty position, she works as a sex therapist in Bangor. In addition to teaching the large undergraduate course in human sexuality, Dr. Karen teaches a graduate course in sexuality as well as two undergraduate courses in family studies. She also serves as the founder and director of three peer education programs, Athletes for Sexual Responsibility, the Greek Peer Education Program, and Male Athletes Against Violence. Due to the success of the educational videos and poster series, these programs have become models for other colleges and universities across the country. In the summers, Dr. Karen has taught a study abroad course, Human Sexuality, Europe versus the United States, which she takes students to England, the Netherlands, and Sweden to examine firsthand how other countries deal with sexuality issues. On today's show, Dr. Karen and I are going to discuss her new book about the sex life of college students. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Dr. Karen. Welcome to Reproductive Left. Thank you for being on the show with me today. Thank you for having me. I asked you on the show to talk about your book, The Sex Life of College Students, A Quarter Century of Attitudes and Behaviors. Your book presents the results gained from 5,606 college students ages 18 to 22 over the past 25 years. So how did you collect this data? Well, as you know, I'm a professor of human sexuality here at the University of Maine. And when I first arrived here, a quarter century ago, um, I had a great idea that I would continue offering a survey that my mentor at Syracuse had offered his class for years and years. And he said, oh yeah, you should definitely uh, collect the data, uh, continue to survey your class. And my intention at the time was to be able to put the results together, talk about research, when I got to that section uh, of the textbook, if you will, uh, talk about how we design questions, but also put together the results so that they could compare themselves to some of the other studies they'd be reading about um, in the textbook. So in a, in a sense, to compare themselves to the national average. 
And over the years, I've been able to not only compare the findings to these other studies, but then turn around and compare them. Oh, you know, last year's class or five years ago, the class. And one day I was talking to one of my colleagues and they said, gee, this would make a really interesting story of how sex and sexual attitudes, behaviors have changed in a sense over time, or have they changed? And to really take a look at that. And so putting the book together really came out of that. Wanting to make something that was very user-friendly. It's very colorful. It's full of lots of graphics. Yes. It's light, if you will. It isn't meant to be heavy reading. But to sort of paint a picture of what's happened to one group of college students, if you will, one place over time. That's neat. So you chose to do your research on college students mostly because you had access to them? Easy access, but also um, certainly interested in this 18 to 22-year-old uh, group in particular. What happens to people when they leave home? Uh, what happens in terms of their attitudes and behaviors? It's been very interesting to look at what happens when college students, in a sense, come to college. They're away from home for the first time. Mm -hmm. What kinds of choices do they make in terms of their maybe behaviors, but also what happens while they're in college. And we see interesting trends in terms of attitude shifts and being more open. Because of course, when you come to college, you're exposed to a lot more diversity and hopefully um, start appreciating, in a sense, the range of uh, ways that people live their lives. So I actually do want to talk a little bit more about your human sexuality class. I went to UMaine, um, but never had the pleasure of taking the class, unfortunately. But I do know lots of people who have, and everyone just loved it. And there's yes. even a waiting list, you know. So what is, um, can you tell us a little bit about what the class is about? Well, sure. It's a large survey course. Uh, enrolls 350 students. And yes, it is at capacity every semester. <laughs> um, and it really covers a whole range of things, um, everything from anatomy, um, sexual response, feelings, relationships, uh, understanding differences between issues like uh, gender, sex, orientation, um, really looking at social issues, for example, the impact of HIV and what mm. that's had on uh, our lives, uh, looking at laws and legislation policy, so again, a whole slew of things. Each one of the topics could be a course in themselves. I actually wish I um, could have taken your class or knew to take it when I was a student. I, I think it should be a requirement for all first-year students. Um, and thinking back to my own sex education, I, I got it in a lot of different places. So some from my high school health class, um, I do remember we did one class on birth control, but I don't think they ever even taught us how to use a condom properly. Um, my parents are pretty open, so I did get some education from my parents, even probably more from my sister. Um, she's older. I, I got a lot of information or misinformation from peers and friends, and then I'd say probably the majority of my sex education came from the media. Um, I remember watching a lot of MTV growing up, reading Cosmo magazine, and then the internet was a big part of my education. So, so can I just say, yeah. welcome to America. Is that my <laughs> classic, classic um, student that I hear from? So, I'm not saying that there isn't a range of 
uh, education and that students have had, but many people, I always say, have sort of a junior high mentality when it comes to sexuality. It's as if they've gotten nothing more than what they got in their basic puberty class, and maybe they had a oh birth control class in high school, which is often you know tenth grade, too little, too late, mm -hmm. you know, too biological, those kinds of things. And unfortunately, we have a long way to go when we talk about comprehensive sex education. You know, having just come back from Europe where I teach this course every year so that students can see firsthand how maybe other countries deal much more effectively yep. with issues. You can see why sex education is just so important as a, having a basic understanding of your body and how it functions. And if you have that, you have the ability to take responsibility for something that you, in a sense, own. And it starts early and it needs to start early. And you were fortunate to have a parent or parents that you could talk to but, you know, when I look at the results of my own survey, most students don't have that. Mm. Even in 25 years, that is probably one of the most, uh, I don't want to say shocking, but unsettling uh, findings is that parents have really not stepped up to the plate in the way that I expected or thought by now they would have, that I thought most students would say, oh, sure, of course, I've talked to my mom or dad. Of course, they're a wonderful resource. And that's not been the case um, for them. And then in the schools, um, there's a lot of abstinence-based education. Yeah, in the last couple decades, we've spent $1.5 billion at least on abstinence-only education, even though research says that's not effective. What we know works or is helpful is giving students a range, that, or what we call comprehensive sex education, which would cover not only abstinence, but okay, if you're going to be sexually active, what do you need to do? What do you need to know? Um, so yeah, we've spent a lot of time, um, unfortunately, and a lot of money on something that really has proven ineffective. And that shows in your surveys? As well. I would say there's a lot of, um, well, I see it also in my class, just in terms of a lot of questions. You know, you talk about who you used for a resource. When we talk about the internet, for example, the availability of pornography, you know, it's, a, it des, it's designed for adults. Right. But unfortunately, it's become a primary mode for many people to get their sex education. And instead of adults saying, whoa, wait a minute, let me talk to you about the realities. This is all fantasy. This is meant for, for us, you know, the adults. Mm -hmm. It's being used, unfortunately, for many people to get a lot of misunderstanding, if you will around sex. And also, with the internet, it's like you're swimming in a sea of information. Unlike my parents' generation, literally had no access maybe to information. You didn't have a book. You didn't have anything. You didn't have the internet, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, today's students, of course, have the internet, but figuring out in this sea of information what's credible and what's not, I think is also, um, can be a challenge for students. Yeah. I could imagine that. Um, I found some really good resources when I was in college, but um, that was through my like women's studies education. So with, I think without that, mm -hmm. you could get lost. <laughs> sure. And if we only have our friends yeah. to turn to, it's sort of like, and can be like the blind leading the blind. So it's yes. a scary thought. It is funny to think back on some of the things that I, I held to be true when I was, you know, 16. Um, in the past few years, there's been a lot of discussion about hookup culture. Um, so 
this is kind of the idea that hookup culture accepts and encourages casual sexual encounters with the focus on physical pleasure without necessarily having love or long-term commitment. What does your research tell us about sex, love, and relationships? Wow, okay, so there's a number of different questions, but the first thing that's important to know is that despite all the hype, um, this idea that today's generation is sleeping with a lot more people than any, ever before is actually um, a misnomer, it's a misunderstanding. I mean, in the past, 25 years ago, people were having as many sexual partners. They called them, instead of friends with benefits, it was called casual sex. So mm -hmm. I think we've sort of labeled something and hyped it up and the media loves right, to <laughs> run with something like that. So I think that's really important for people to understand. And again, why we want to do research is to understand the realities of people's lives versus what we're fed, maybe from television or movies, those kinds of things. There is one thing that, uh, in another question, that is sort of telling, though, about this uh, maybe more uh, recent group of college students, and that is the change in attitude around love. You know, I like to say that, you know, love might be endangered, but it's not extinct. Certainly about 60% of the group says, you know, love is important as a connection with sex. But when you look over time, it has certainly dropped off in importance. Uh, it, um, sex is something it doesn't matter if you're in love. And in fact, the term making love is probably on its way out. It's <laughs> sort of an interesting thing. Um, the other thing that, uh, and coming from another question, has to do with uh, faking orgasm. And I want to bring that up because I think it's really important. It's really telling about what's happening in terms of people thinking sex is about performance. Uh, and again, part of this is getting fed by sort of the erotica, or if you want to call it pornography, that maybe you've seen as a kid and you think, wow, you're supposed to have these superhuman, you know, experiences. And it's amazing to me how many people fake orgasm. In fact, in the survey, almost 80% of women say, oh, of course I've faked, and don't see any problem with it either. Mm. And not only are women faking, men are faking it too. Over 25 years, we've seen a dramatic increase in men as well. And makes you wonder, why? Why? An why bother? I mean, right. for an activity that's designed for pleasure, connection, it has become about a performance. Because if you're faking it and not really enjoying yourself, it's as if you either want to please your partner or you think this is what it's supposed to be. So it just shows, again, I think the need for education to help people own their sexuality, to have a more realistic basis of thinking about what this is supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. You know, other questions, certainly, you know, when you think about HIV, uh, AIDS, and how that's changed over time in terms of perceptions, we see that we've made great gains and in safer sex in general, condom use, contraceptive use, 25 years, we have made wonderful gains. We aren't completely there in terms of everybody right. practices safer sex, but we're certainly better off. But it's interesting, in more recent years, when you ask about how concerned, for example, the question, how concerned are you about HIV? In the early 1990s when I started doing this, almost nobody was checked off not concerned. Mm -hmm. Today, almost a quarter of people say not concerned at all. And part of that is legitimate. I mean, there are drugs, there are, uh, we understand right. use of condom uses up. 
But there's also a whole group of people who sort of let go. There, we see more, a little bit more risk-taking now happening. It's almost as if we've stopped the message about the importance of protecting yourself. And now we're going to see this new swing of people going, I don't have to be worried. There's nothing to worry about. I have seen that statistic that about 25% of people aged like 18 to 25 have had some kind of sexually transmitted infection, um, which is kind of, and it's like the highest percentage out of um, any age group. Mm -hmm. So that kind of follows what you're saying. Yeah, that we are seeing a little bit more risk-taking. I mean, certainly we've made some gains, like I said. And, you know, of course, with safer sex, uh, contraceptive use particularly, you are seeing fewer uh, terminations, fewer abortions, mm -hmm. for example. But, fewer un unintended pregnancies. Right. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, we certainly have a ways to go. Um, I like that you say there's a quote that I... Um, love of yours. We live in a sex-saturated culture and sex-silent. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Sure. Um, and I say that a lot. That's very <laughs> interesting. We're sex-saturated, but we're sex-silent. It's, it's like sex is everywhere. Everywhere. It's around us. But we, it's like we're not going to talk to you as our as my child, I'm not going to say anything to you because I don't want to put ideas in your head. As if they're not already there. As if not saying anything. And so it's fascinating to me that we need to do a better job talking about these issues because otherwise we're leaving people in the dark. We're leaving them to, let's say, erotica to educate them rather than their own parents or the school. Mm -hmm. present a very, you know, here's the science, here's what we know about the facts and figures. You know, we really need to do a better job. But like I said, too often sex education is too little, too late, and too biological. It's extremely frustrating. Yeah, and it does seem like when people are having conversations about sex or sexuality, they don't go deeper to really talk about the issues um, that we face. It's more surface level, more joking, um, and it leaves a lot of really important topics silenced. Well, and I also think we may just stay with the statistics and we don't really talk about, you know, I always say, look, we teach the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. We need a fourth, which is relationships. And that's really what sexuality education is about. How do we connect with other people? You know, I can talk to a high school and collect questions. Nobody asks me what a fallopian tube is. They could care less. They ask me about what does it mean to break up, or I have this person who likes me, and I'm in love with them, or I think I'm in love with them, or, gee, I masturbate. I'm wondering if I'm normal. I mean, it's sort of those kinds of issues that we need to get into, but we hardly, if you're going to have one class I... in a high school, in health class, that focuses on sexuality, it's going to be a birth control, and right. it's all good. Yep. Or it's going to be whatever is, I want to say, um, we like to focus on the negative. Mm -hmm. right? We love to talk about the horrors of oh, unintended pregnancy and the horrors of STI. Yes, showing Instead those pictures. Of, right. <laughs> Instead of talking about, wow, what does it mean if you really care about somebody and how do, we, how do we connect with one another? It isn't just about how to say no to sex, but it's really about helping people understand when's a good time to say yes mm -hmm. to sex. Yeah, and if we're not having those conversations, then it's, you know, while I think having conversations about birth control and safer sex are really important, but it's almost without the relationship piece, it, do, it doesn't connect yet. Right. The other thing I wanted to add is 
you know, this is so important because college students are our future leaders. They're our future teachers, doctors, lawyers, tele television producers, and for goodness sakes, parents. We need to give them this information so that they can make responsible decisions and they can also influence sort of the next generation to have the information they need. We need to let go of the, what I call common bedtime fables, the ideas that, you know, everybody else knows the secrets to sex and, you know, is jumping into bed and having wonderful, fantastic sex. <laughs> you know, we need to educate people about the realities of what this is about and what to ex expectations being much more realistic. Yeah. So, Dr. Karen, I do want to thank you for being on Reproductive Left with me today. Um, we are running out of time, and we need to move into our Ask Mabel segment with our nurse practitioner, Terry Marley DeRozier. I want to ask you one last question, which is I want to know if our listeners take one thing away from this interview today. What do you want it to be? I think that we really need more honest conversations about the role of sex in our lives. I think that college students need to be educated and others, young people, and that you know we certainly can do a better job in this area. Thank you. Hello, welcome to Ask Mabel with nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier. She's here to answer sexual and reproductive health questions. If you have a question, please email educate at mabelwadsworth.org. So we are going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to go from discussing young adults to actually discussing women experiencing menopause. So Terry, um, could we have you start by just explaining could we have you start by explaining what menopause is and when it usually occurs? Hey, Abby. Hi. Good afternoon. Um, I love to talk about menopause because, you know, let's face it, I'm there. Um, menopause is defined as the absence of your periods for 12 months in a row. Um, and the average age of menopause for um, Women in the United States is about 51, although changes can be happening with a woman's menstrual cycles from her mid-40s into her uh, late 50s. Um, menopause, um, as I said, is the cessation of the periods for a full year. So if bleeding occurs uh, for the woman after that year, it should always be evaluated with her healthcare provider. Terry, you see a lot of women um, who come to you to talk about menopause concerns. Could you talk about some of the most common concerns or complaints and maybe um, things women can do to deal with those? Sure. Um, I'd like to start with the two complaints that I really do hear um, more concerns about from women than, and, than the others. And perhaps at a later uh, point, Abby, we can go over some of those other uh, concerns. But today I'd like to talk about hot flushes. Uh, and vaginal dryness. Uh, hot flashes or hot flushing um, occurs as the most common menopausal symptom in between 50 to 80 percent of women. Um, it's very, it can be very disturbing, it can interfere with your sleep pattern. So there are some suggestions that um, 
I'd like to just share that may be helpful um, for you um, as you get to that place in your life and for all women. Um, to remember that the hot flush is very normal and common and it doesn't mean that anything has to be wrong. Um, if we dress in layers, that can be helpful so you can shed um, what you don't need for clothing and to kind of be sure that the fabric of what you're wearing is, you know, breathable um, and not polyester that seems to kind of almost trap the heat. Um, so cotton is, is great. Um, to avoid areas where you know it's going to be super hot because, uh, you know, heat, temp you know, temperature of a room really can trigger uh, a hot flush. Um, avoiding, you know, highly seasoned or spiced foods, large meals, which can also be a trigger for some women. Alcohol is a trigger. Caffeine can be a trigger. Um, so to kind of know your body and keep a little journal um, of what seems to be your triggers can be really helpful. Uh, eating healthy can really um, decrease hot flushing, you know, avoiding caffeine, colas, chocolate, um, hot soups, and eating foods that are high in B-complex, uh, such as green leafies. Um, some foods actually contain like a weak form of estrogen, uh, carrots, squash, uh, sweet potatoes, soy products, um, so some people have found that that's been helpful for them uh, in a natural way to decrease their um, hot flushing. Certainly if these kind of uh, more at-home type suggestions don't seem to help, there is always the option to talk to your care provider about the possibility of even doing some hormonal replacement. Um, there are also some great books um, about herbal uh, therapies that may be helpful and um, we can always talk about that further um, if it's desired. Um, but at this time, um, I think we have to kind of be sure that the herbs that we're taking uh, don't interfere with other medications that we might be on or other health conditions. So I usually encourage clients to make sure before they start even an herbal therapy that they've kind of cleared that with their um, provider, healthcare provider. I'd like to talk a little bit about vaginal dryness, as we do hear a lot of um, concerns around vaginal dryness. Again, um, it is a common symptom of menopause, and for some women, um, the decline in estrogen that occurs with menopause can actually create vaginal dryness long before the woman's periods have stopped. Um, the vagina becomes less elastic, uh, so therefore intercourse can be uncomfortable. Over-the-counter lubricants are certainly available, and there's all kinds that they're marketing out there now that have extra little special zing um, to them <laughs> to try to increase the pleasure aspect of the lubricant. Um, one of the things I think that's important is to remember that hydration impacts vaginal dryness, so we should be trying to um, just be mindful of drinking plenty of water during the day. And for women that are on antihistamines for um, management of allergies, not only does the antihistamine dry up uh, your nasal mucus, but it also dries up vaginal mucus. So if antihistamines are being used, you just need to be really aware of making sure you get you know, plenty of uh, fluid intake. Um, certainly, estrogen supplementation prescribed by your healthcare provider, you know, it, 
is an option to enhance um, vaginal moisture post-menopause. But always remember that there are inherent risks, you know, to taking hormone replacement therapy, and we will be talking about that at a future um, discussion. Um, always estrogen supplementation is used or recommended to be used for the lowest dose and shortest period of time. Since vaginal dryness could pers persist for quite a while, um, even postmenopause, um, that's why I like to talk about some of these other non-hormone related um, ways that we can work with that. Great. Thank you so much, Terry. That's all the time we have for questions today. But as you um, were saying, we're going to continue the next couple um, episodes of Reproductive Left will include questions about menopause. So for listeners, um, tune in the next couple months if this is a topic you have interest in. Um, so thank you, Terry. And may I give one parting um, message, Abby, just for Please. folks to take away? Um, we mentioned a little bit about bleeding after um, the year of, of no periods. And I would just like women to remember that although postmenopausal bleeding does not have to be always caused by a serious uh, problem, it always needs attention. Thank you, Terry. For more information about Mabel Wadsworth Center, visit www.mabelwadsworth.org or Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center on Facebook. Thanks for listening to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. I'm Abby Strout. Tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4 p.m., right here at WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 .9 Bangor, and streaming everywhere at www.weru.org.